With the increased focus on the Black Lives Matter movement, many of us are finding ourselves in more conversations about race and racism than we have been before. And within these conversations, many of us are unfortunately realizing that the people close to us don't necessarily share the same opinions as us. Whether that's because this is the first time you're discussing these topics, or because you've been making an effort to educate yourself more and so you're noticing things that you previously might have overlooked, or because you've committed yourself more to being an anti-racist ally and are no longer letting things slide that you may have previously ignored. Whatever the reason, realizing that someone you know is believing and perpetuating racist ideology can be a daunting experience, especially if it's something you've not experienced before. It can leave many people that are new to anti-racist mobilization unsure of how to proceed. How do you respond to a comment you don't agree with? Should you ignore it? Should you try to re-educate them? How do you do it in a way that will encourage healthy dialogue? What's the best way to get this person to change their views? I'm Ms. Bamalek. I'm Mona Gassim. I'm Ashling Williams. And I'm Jingmen Tan. And in this episode, we're hopefully going to provide you with a bit of guidance about how we feel the best way to act in these situations is, based on our own personal experiences. We hope to touch on why it's important to call people out when they say something racist, how to do that in a way that's productive, how to respond if you're being the one called out, and we're also going to touch on some key terms such as emotional labour, tone policing, and a few others. So we're going to start the conversation uh, by talking about why it's important to call people out if they say something that we don't agree with or that is racist. So racism is a result of miseducation and false information um, that we then need to re-educate. So the whole concept of race itself is false information. The first thing you learn about critical race theory and Orientalism is that race is a social construction itself created by the colonial uh, era. Um, the colonists invented the different categories of white and non-white and imbued them with social meaning in order to create a racial hierarchy. And racism in the present day is just a continuation of these ideas. If we can correct the false information imbued into these racial categories, then, you know, racism holds no factual basis. Yeah, I think, you know, that point that you made, race is a social construct and, you know, understanding how this, you know, the terminology surrounding race and the connotations, especially the negative connotations surrounding, you know, things that are darker. So throughout history, if you look at it, blackness has always been associated with like the dark side, evil, whiteness on the other hand, has been associated with, you know, innocence and purity. So understanding that, you know, the concept of race itself is based on this notion of othering, um, of making one race, quote unquote, which isn't a real thing, more superior and using, you know, social norms and systems and structures and institutions to supplant that supremacy and understanding that this is all a construction based on creating and perpetuating unequal power structures in society is an extremely important part of dismantling those systems, both in our language, the terms we use and the way we use our words, and also in how we think about you know, many of the negative stereotypes that we have and that are used across cultures um, that tend to be very xenophobic and, you know, racist in its, um, in its you know, underpinning. Absolutely. I think one thing that really shocks people and that people kind of turn off um, once they hear is when people say, oh, race is just a social construct. But 
you know, when we really think about the history of race and, and when we read what anthropologists say, it is true. And I guess for us to, to even begin to meaningfully deconstruct what that means, that race is a social construct, we have to look at history. We can't talk about racism and racial hierarchies without talking about imperialism. And so it really goes back to how imperialism and colonialism were justified by this idea of white supremacy. That's really interesting. I think it's a lot to do with like deconstructing like misinformation that we've been sold um, and propaganda that was created for, you know, the Jim Crow era um, and during slavery to create these uh, perceived racial categories. And, you know, it's like it, it bleeds into casual and unintended racism. We're not just talking like about explicit racism. Um, like racial slurs, but also the way that we have racial biases that spread um, into everyday discussion. Um, they become subconscious um, and disguised and subtle, which is almost more harmful because they aren't overt. You know, we're not seeing like, it's not it's not violence or slurs. It's, you know, biases that we've created that become part of our society. And that is sometimes more dangerous. I think, um, you know, one thing that strikes me is so when you know you said like people are apprehensive like all of us kind of mentioned that people are apprehensive when you hear about race and I think Jing you were saying that people are they kind of are struck by you know the idea that race is a social construct and I think this has a negative connotation that relates to implicit racism so a lot of people will say I don't see color and I think they you know, they root that statement in the idea of like race being a social construct. And that, that, that itself, that in itself is where you see, you know, perhaps a well-intentioned person using their language in a negative way that can have really negative consequences for people who actually have the lived experience of racism. Because, you know, people do look different. And depending on how you look and the color of your skin, um, you are treated different. And because race is a social construct, the idea of race and the con connotations of your skin color, your hair type, your ethnicity have connotations that have social implications. So I think, you know, I just want to draw attention to the fact that, you know, that statement, I don't see color, is highly problematic because essentially it's saying that you don't see the difference in, you know, lived experiences of individuals. I think, yeah, exactly. And I think that's why it's really important to always talk about racism in terms of power. So yes, these stereotypes are socially created and they, you know, hold no validity. But the whole point of it is that the power that, you know, the white supremacist systems have means that these stereotypes do now have social meaning and do now have real tangible impact on people's lives. And so that's why when we talk about racism, we always need to remember it's about power as well. It also makes me think of how racism doesn't just operate on an individual level. So it'd be fine, I suppose, if everybody in the world didn't see color, but that's just not that's just not the reality. Um, and so if one person wants to be effectively anti-racist, um, you know, wants to empathize with, really empathize with the kind of struggles that people of color face on a daily basis, they cannot pretend that race doesn't exist and that um, people of minorities or of different skin colors experience differential treatment on a daily basis because that wouldn't be according the respect and recognition of those people's lived experiences. 
Um, it also makes me think of, like, you know, Ashling, how you were saying just now about the harms of and the insidiousness of casual racism. It also makes me think of racist jokes um, and, and people kind of brush it aside and say, like, you know, there's, there's a big spectrum. And I suppose there are some jokes that would clearly cross um, an out of boundary marker. But there are some which are a little bit more in the gray area. And those are the ones that potentially are even more insidious because if we let those slide, it normalizes a whole view of people of a certain physiology, um, dehumanizes them simply because we think it's funny and we think it's it's all right to say these things and we don't want to be too uptight. But those are precisely the kinds of moments where it's even more important to correct those problematic views. So in terms of uh, correcting the problematic views, whose sort of responsibility do we think this is? So obviously, um, as as a person of colour, you kind of come into contact with this very, very often. And a lot of the time... Uh, it is people of colour who are the ones who are doing the emotional labour and correcting this uh, misinformation. But who, and so in terms of allyship, how do we think those two link together? I think if you're a person who experiences privilege and benefits from the system, so if you benefit from the white supremacist system in any way, shape or form, then I think it's your responsibility to use your privilege, to use the benefits that you have, the access that you have, to essentially work towards dismantling that system because you are the most protected in that system and people of color, black individuals are the least protected in that system. So it's up to you if you're, I personally believe it's up to you if you're any person who benefits from that system to be as active as possible in dismantling the system. And unfortunately, that isn't the case. We see most of the times throughout history, now even, you know, people of color, black individuals, are the other people faced with, you know, fighting for their rights more than anyone else. And often the burden to fight for their rights, to stand up for things. We just saw, you know, the NBA players having to walk off the court and things like that, right? Black people have had to put their livelihoods at risk, their jobs at risk, um, you know, their future, their careers at risk to stand up for their basic human rights. And we don't see this being translated into white individuals always reflecting that same level of allyship. And it, it it's an important point to note because I think it's really important to remember that the people who benefit from a system have that responsibility and that duty to sort of use their privilege to help others. Definitely. I think coming from my perspective, I wanted to say that not all people of color experience the same level of disadvantage. Um, I'm coming from a place of, um, I'm Chinese, uh, I'm East Asian, and I live in Singapore, which is a Chinese majority country. So I feel that I experience an immense amount of privilege, not only because in the international, like the global hierarchy of race, East Asian people unrelatively privileged compared to black and brown people but also in Singapore the structures and the systems and the culture that you know shape our country and shape national narratives very much privilege people like myself um, anglophone racially Chinese people so I feel that I have an especial burden or an especial responsibility to you know, be talking about race and be challenging the kind of mm, dominant narratives that characterize 
um, global conversations and national conversations on race. I agree with um, Jing and I think I come from like a similar position Um, and I think as a white person I know I must be accountable for my actions and what I say and I have to be especially vigilant um, because that's what's necessary for combating casual racism for example you have to speak up um, when you encounter it and you have to make sure that you're part of that movement and you know you can't just excuse people and say you know that's the way that they were raised or it was a different era it's about you know, holding people accountable. And um, yeah, I think that's really important. And I think the concept of intersectionality is a really good point to talk about in terms of dealing with the different levels of privilege as well within um, people of color. Um, So yeah, I just, you know, briefly want to touch upon that within, you know, like people of color as well, um, black individuals, you have different levels of privilege depending on your gender, depending on your socioeconomic status, etc. And so whenever we talk about, you know, privilege and things like that, I think it's always important to look at intersectionality. And I think, you know, for for our audience, I think that's a good concept um, to read about. So definitely check that out. Yeah, really great points. Thanks, guys. Um, so moving on to... Um the rest of our discussion uh we're gonna briefly talk about now how we should actually be holding people accountable in a way that is going to be most productive um so figuring out the best way to call someone out can be a struggle and there's obviously no predetermined right or wrong way it completely depends on the context you know who the person is what they've said with that in mind though there are some sort of tips that can help you in these situations Uh, So I'm going to open the floor to the rest of our panellists now. Um, So what are your top tips for when you sort of encounter someone that said something that you don't agree with? I think one thing that I think is so important and I wanted to raise first was the idea of safety. Um, Not actually not the idea, the priority of safety. Um, and, And of course, we have one aspect, which is the physical side of things, but also psychological safety. Um, if we talk first about physical safety, I think it's important for us to be able to gauge, you know, like read the room, read the, the kind of the body language of the person you're engaging. Is that person racist? Is that person actually being aggressive towards you? Do you feel safe? If you don't, then perhaps, you know, you, you need to prioritize your physical safety and not engage with that person especially if you think that person might resort to violence. If you see somebody else being victimized or being harassed on the street, maybe you might want to stand between um, the person who is trying to engage the other person and the person and the attacker. If, if things become very extreme, you could call the police or maybe you, you can try and de-escalate the situation if you feel that it's the safe thing to do. Um, perhaps you can try and start a conversation with the person who is clearly being attacked and try and get that person, extricate that person from the, the tricky situation. Of course, if it's somebody else, if it's a person of color who is clearly being victimized, um, psychological safety is is so important as well and as allies what we can do is to check on the other person ask if they're okay and I think something else that's um, particularly challenging in this time when everyone's kind of um, awakening to the problem of anti-racist work is um, that for some people it's just not very safe even to engage in conversation at home Um, what I mean is 
we hear stories of people who are actually being thrown out of their houses with nowhere else to go because they're minors or they're dependents when they try and challenge um, their parents' views. If you are in that position, you are that minor, um, it is important that you also prioritize your safety and your well-being. And so if you think that the situation would escalate to an extent that you may not have a home, you may want to step away from that conversation as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I definitely think like you brought up a point, um, you know, about calling the police. And I think this is once again an issue where we see, you know, privilege playing a huge part. Right. So like as we've seen in the United States, countless numbers of times and just recently with Jacob Blake as well, when it comes to a black individual and calling the police, it often ends in a very unfortunate, um, you know, act of violence. And so there here, I think it's like really important to sort of understand what circumstance you're in um, and look at the situation effectively. And now, obviously, you know, as we've spoken about in previous episodes, defunding the police and the prison industrial complex and the racist institution itself. Um, so I think something to also just kind of critically think about is how do you, in our current system, maintain safety with your relations with others when, you know, the people who are meant to protect you don't or aren't aren't or can't. So I just think that was that's an important point to note. Um, and then, you know, building upon that, I think clarification is extremely important. So understanding is at the heart of effective communication. So it's understanding one another. And sometimes, you know, there may be occasions where you've misheard something um, or someone, you know, perhaps there's a language barrier or different phrases or, you know, it was worded incorrectly and you could have, you know, thought that this was a racist statement, but perhaps that person truly didn't have that intention. Um, and, you know, while this is really important, so it's important to clarify before you start to, you know, um, call someone out or point out, you know, what they said is racist. I think it's also important to not be too lenient with that. And I say this because I think in this day and age, you know, everyone has access, a lot of people, I don't want to say everyone because there are, there's obviously structures of privilege in the world, but many people have access to information. Um, a lot of people do know what they are saying oftentimes and it, and it, and they do know, um, you know, whether they admit it openly that it is racist, it is stereotypical, it is judgmental. And so I would say, you know, make sure you clarify, but don't always, don't use clarification as a way to brush aside, um, a racist statement, because that can also be used as, um, you know, an excuse to allow implicit or casual racism to just continue. Um, but then again, anti-racist mobilization um, has a lot of terminologies and, you know, uh, there's a lot of authors, a lot of writers, a, a lot of articles on on anti-racism and a lot of people are, are new to it. So they're just coming across it for the first time. They may not be familiar with activism, mobilization, anti-racist work. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important for, for those people to I think it's important for those people to actually, you know, ask more questions. I don't think it's the responsibility of individuals who are around them or, you know, have experienced racism to to hold that responsibility and bear the burden of essentially educating them on these things. I think it's their their prerogative to sort of ask the questions, do the research, Google, you know, buy the books. Um, but I do think it's important to, you know, demonstrate some compassion. So don't launch into an attack if you're unsure 
if you are unsure about that person's intentions, because that will just result in ineffective communication and no, no change will occur. Um, yeah, which I think, you know, brings us into our next point of how to sort of launch into attack and, you know, what, how we should sort of approach that situation when it actually comes to the physical act. And by physical, I mean, usually verbal or online. So not like physical fighting, not violence, but how do we sort of keep our mental composure? Um, and that's an important point that I think we want to talk about next. Yeah, I think trying to remain calm is a really important part of this, um, keeping the goal in mind being really vigilant and trying not to tone police, um, which is where we see somebody's anger or frustration or exasperation as aggressive or dangerous because they're a person of colour, um, which is a part of structural racism and something that we need to make sure we're very aware of. Um, you know, being angry and confrontational comes with this frustration and we need to allow ourselves to reason um, and be calm at the same time but also give people space to air their frustrations. Um, and it depends completely on the situation. You can make a ju judgment and call about whether it's better to call them out in the moment or take them aside and, you know, calmly ask them what their intentions were, what they were trying to say. You basically want to create a situation where everyone is benefiting from the discussion and it becomes a space of um, building and people feel uh, safe and later on that they can reflect. And yeah, it's about building that space where, yeah, the goal is the same with everyone. Yeah, definitely. Something I wanted to add at this point was that, you know, you don't have to be so outcomes-oriented in that a single conversation is not going to change someone's views for the rest of their lives. Um, just as a conversation is, is part of, it's just, it's an extension, right? It's an outgrowth of a relationship. And if we are building on that relationship and growing together, then it means that we're going to have lots of difficult conversations. So don't feel pressure on yourself or even on that person to change that person's views just in a matter of like an hour. I think it's important to use um, statements, you know, I statements rather than, you know, you're a racist or what you, so you instead say something like what you said made me feel like this or, you know, is this what you intended to, to say? Yeah, so it's a space, just like a safe space. And on the back of, um, you know, relationship building, something else that I could suggest would be to, to actually take time to listen to what they have to say. Maybe ask questions about why they think the way they think. Um, maybe it's rooted in some past experience that um, they didn't, they couldn't rationalize or um, they didn't see why those things happened. And so we actually want to take time to, to listen to what they say. Um, it also slows down the conversation um, so that, you know, you're making space for one another to understand where each other is coming from. Listening to them will help you figure out exactly where their logic may be flawed or why they believe the things they do. Um, and it does make the other person more likely to listen to you if you do the same for them. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, listening is so important. I think a lot of the times, a lot of us in, the, in this day and age are focused on, you know, speaking, talking, attacking, you know, debating, making our point clear. And I think we forget to listen. And I think it's, you know, one of the hardest things to do is if you're someone who has experienced, you know, 
racism or seen it in action is to, you know, sit down with someone who, you know, doesn't believe it's real or someone who is completely oblivious to privilege um, or someone who, you know, is making, quite frankly, racist statements. And I think that's a real, you know, testament to effective communication is to have that capacity to, you know, just sit back and listen before you launch into your attack mode. And the reason that is, is because I think you're, you're much able to form a coherent and a cohesive and a well, a well structured argument, um, for your point. And it's more likely to be effective in, in, you know, making change. And I think when we talk about, you know, how do we give effective arguments in terms of calling people out and trying to, um, you know, call out racism? And we see a lot of, you know, especially nowadays, we see a lot of like Instagram memes with facts and statistics. And I think those are useful because a lot of people may be living in a state of ignorance. So especially I think people who, you know, maybe not as adept with like online technology, perhaps individuals of an older generation, things like that, they they may just be living in ignorance. They've probably lived their whole life living in privilege or, you know, in a bubble. And so I think using actual factual numbers um, to show that this is, you know, systemic and institutional racism can be a good way of sort of combating this ignorance. I do, however, think that when you use statistics, you need to be careful because it may not always be effective when it comes to making your point. So for example, saying that, you know, this percentage of black men are, you know, stopped by the police doesn't necessarily say anything because a lot of people, a lot of people use that very racist argument about, you know, black and black crime. And that's the reason, you know, black people encounter more violence. And, you know, that's the reason more black people go to jail. And without really understanding that that's actually a false narrative created and without understanding the deeper structural inequities that perpetuate the system. So, you know, people living um, in uh, a lower socioeconomic neighborhood where the police patrol more uh, without access to education, good education and good schooling. And with the police essentially just racial profiling and stopping people of color more, which means that they tend to encounter police violence more. It has nothing to do with, you know, black and black crime or people of color being more violent or, or, or more criminal, right? And, and we've speak, spoken about that in previous episodes, the criminality associated with the black body and that being essentially, you know, a racist white supremacist notion that has been perpetuated. Um, so I think it's important to choose your statistics carefully. And then to not only use those statistics um, as a means of, you know, making your argument factual, but to make sure that within that, you also remember that at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings. So we're not talking about an aggregate. I think people forget that we go, you know, we say, um, you know, as a black person myself, I do it a lot. We say like, you know, black people, blah, blah, blah. And we think of people as an aggregate or this people are, or, you know, like, I think it's important to look at people as human beings. So look at each individual circumstance and case. Everyone is a human being. Everyone is deserving of dignity. Um, and I think people forget that. It's almost like at this time and, and this year with all the violence that has been inflicted upon black people, particularly in the, particularly in the United States and, and all around the world in, in the UK, et cetera. Um, we've seen like this complete dehumanization of the black body. And, you know, people sharing uh, violent videos of people dying as if as if black people are animals. And I think we forget that at the end of the day, people are people and deserving of dignity and respect. 
And so that's really important to take into consideration. And you, you don't always have to be the person who has all the answers. You don't always have to be that person who just has the statistics and the facts. Sometimes the best way to change someone else's view is to essentially ask them questions. Um, because obviously change starts from within. Um, if someone has to want to change before they change. So if you're talking to a racist, they have to actually want to be anti-racist and they actually have to want to tackle their views for them to change. And so sometimes just being the person to say, to question, say, oh, um, and tell me why you think that. Tell me what your experience was. What made you believe this? Why do you think this is true? Making people look at their own thoughts and question them and think critically about themselves is sometimes uh, one of the best ways of invoking change in another person. Um, so I think that's fundamental. You know, it starts from within and empathy is so huge to this. Um, earlier, you were talking about Instagram and statistics we find online. And I think that brings me on to my point. Um, when we encounter people online who perhaps are in their own bubble, um, keyboard warriors who feel that they're safe behind their keyboard and they're finding it easier to argue hard online. You know, if you come across a racist post, the question is, what should you do? Um, and I think if you feel like you're equipped um, with the resources and the knowledge and you've done your reading and education, then maybe you can interact. Similar to a person-to-person -person conversation with neutral language, you know, uh, inform them if they're misinformed, send them links to articles or books to read. Um, if you feel like you, you don't want to engage or it's a bit frightening, you can just report or block them, especially if the person is explicitly racist and violent um, and interacting with them could just perpetuate and encourage the supporters, um, which could lead to attack on you personally, um, which you should avoid. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. There were some really uh, helpful tips there that hopefully our listeners will be able to put into action. Um, so moving on, let's say, you know, you've tried all these tips, had multiple conversations with, you know, a close friend or a family member. So what would you do then if you've done all of this, but this person still isn't changing their views, they're still perpetuating racist ideologies and, you know, stereotypes? Um, how would you then man maintain a relationship with this person? Would you maintain uh, a relationship with this person? I think if it's a friend... Probably not, because I think, you know, who you surround yourself with is a reflection of the values you hold. So I think if you're surrounding yourself with racists and you are an anti-racist, then that probably won't be effective. So I think it's, this is much easier easier done with friends than it is with family, obviously, because you can't change your family, but you can change your friends. Um, right. So I don't think I think if you've done everything you could and, you know, some people, I think they are blissfully ignorant. They like to live in their ignorance. They enjoy it. They actually enjoy the benefits the system gives them and they don't want it to change because, you know, probably they have power in the system. And I think, you know, those people who actively enjoy the system and don't have any qualms with the injustices going on and, you know, the acts of racial violence and the acts of racial injustice going on in the world and the injustices that have to do with a lot of the power, unequal power relations in our societies... I think, you know, then it's important to cut those people off because, you know, I, I read this, you know, good quote and I think it was, it was on an, it was on Instagram and I think it was about, you know, making people who are racist as uncomfortable as possible. So it needs to be that the racist in the room feels ashamed for being racist at this, in this day and age, I think, you know, 
a lot of people who are racist are going around very comfortable because their their social circles, their friends, people may not necessarily agree with them and have those beliefs, but they allow it to exist. And, you know, we see that argument with Trump. You know, we allow a lot of the racist things he says to just exist. You know, people voted him into power and they it gave permission for all the racist thoughts and all the racists walking around to just have leeway to say whatever they want to say and act in whichever way they want to act. And I think it's important to make racists as uncomfortable. They should be ashamed to be racist. It should be like it shouldn't be a majority of people being racist and a few people being anti-racist and everyone else just kind of being complacent and going with the flow, depending on what's trending in society. Um, or what they have time for. It should be every single person being anti-racist and the racist being ashamed to be racist to the extent that they feel the need to change their own views because it doesn't match society. That said, I think whether you choose to maintain a relationship with that person is still very much an individual choice. Obviously, we can't make judgments on you know, like, we, we don't know what the level of emotional dependence you may have on that person, say. Um, so there are lots of variable factors. From my personal experience, I think one thing that I've kind of tried to remember for myself is that the conversation is never over. I don't think there is a finite arsenal of tools and techniques that I am trying to, um, I'm trying to use and trying to deploy. And once those are exhausted, I just have nothing else left up my sleeve. I think there's always, you know, with every new conversation, with every new news headline that you discuss or whatever, there's always going to be something that might um, spark a different change in the conversation. Um, and so for me, like what I try to do is to keep conversations active um, by, you know, sending links or like, watching films together. Um, I think this is particularly important for family members who you can't, you know, necessarily um, cut off. And for those, for those situations, um, what I've found helpful is to find things that you can watch or read together and, and discuss them and see how those things potentially might change a person's view. Perfect. Um, so moving on, uh, I think an equally important conversation that we need to be having when discussing how to be an ally, but one that is much less talked about, is regards to how to respond when you're the one being called out. So it's important to remember that we're all going to make mistakes. And, you know, even if you're 110% committed to anti-racist mobilisation, there's probably going to be a time when you slip up and maybe say something that isn't completely appropriate or true. And just as allyship is knowing how to react to people perpetuating racial injustices or ideologies, equally important is knowing how to react when you're the one perpetuating them and when someone tries to correct you. So there are a lot of really incredible resources out there about this. Um, to name a couple, uh, White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo and Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad. They both tackle and discuss how you can be a better ally in terms of when someone's trying to educate you. Uh, we also have our first episode of this series, uh, which is called We Need to Talk About Race, uh, where we sort of briefly mention this as well. Um, but we're just going to kind of summarise uh, the main points here about what you should be doing if you're the one being called out. So I think it's important not to centre yourself, especially as a white person. Um, it's about realising that white has been central to so much of the narrative. And it's about looking at intent versus effect. It's not just about what you intend to do, it's about the effect that that your actions have. 
Um, it's about the people of colour who have either directly impact are directly impacted by what you say or what they hear, and also the people of colour who are down the line are going to be affected um, or suffer um, because of the d- d- discourse that you've just perpetuated. So I think that comes with apology. So, you know, f- like being able to apologise and, you know, if you're called out, accepting it and being accountable for this, you know, and, and actively changing um, your views. Unintentional racism is still racism, you know, um, the universal stock photo of a racist person being someone who yells slurs on the train or, you know, pulls a hijab of a woman um, or wears all lives matter T-shirts, um, i.e. someone who's like overtly racist or vi- with violent intent. But this is not only untrue, but it's also ha- harmful for progression as an anti-racist society, because it has unfortunately resulted in a lot of self-proclaimed allies think that they are above racism just because they don't use racist slurs and so it allows a lot of casual or unintentional racism to go unchecked um, when this racism is equally as responsible of upholding racial regimes um, you know but I didn't mean to um, is, is not good enough you know you need to yeah be accountable and this goes into tone policing which we mentioned earlier um which is like spotlighting your own emotions of discomfort over the discomfort that you have caused to others um and it's about saving those emotions for a different space you know where it's more appropriate you know among other people who are also on this journey about learning how to you know what to say what's correct you know um you know, to save embarrassment and confusion and, you know, don't rely on people of colour to have to keep you in check, you know, keep yourself in check and also save your emotions for a space where they're appropriate. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, there's a tendency to expect, you know, a person of colour or a black individual to sort of know the most about racism and anti-racist work and sort of teach you how to be an anti-racist. And I think, it's, I think it's well-intentioned, but it's misplaced. And by that, I mean is that, you know, don't expect your, your friends who are, you know, black individuals or people of color to actually like be the person who goes out and finds the resources for you to do the work because you can do that on your own. They're already, you know, um, they already are, you know, a part of a system that treats them lesser than. So I think it's important to not expect others to teach you because that's like absolving yourself of the responsibility and the duty to sort of teach yourself. I think in this day and age, you can easily Google. Yeah, I think going off that, uh, it's important to remember that people of colour and, you know, black people learn racism through experience, not through reading, you know, all these books that are now available. Uh, So their understanding of racism comes from having to live through it so I think then expecting them to sort of impart that knowledge that they've gained from that onto you is just really wrong and yeah you should be going to your books rather than expecting people of colour and black people to sort of relive um, violent harmful racist experiences that they've had to live through. Exactly. And I think this also, you know, goes to that, you know, that statement, it's a privilege to be able to learn about racism than to have to experience it. And this goes to white fragility as well. Like it's a privilege to only be, to only encounter racist systems in the society that you've upheld and have to be a victim or not a victim, actually just, you know, an individual who has suffered from, you know, these racist circumstances. Um, so, you know, that being said, do not expect a person of color to do all that emotional labor for you. Don't expect them to, you know, 
tell you exactly why your comment was wrong. If a person of color, a black individual has stated that something that you did or said was racist, you know, try and take a step back. Don't go straight into defense mode, into, you know, that that space of fragility where you feel that your entire core has been attacked or that you're being um, that you're that that person is saying that you're not a good person or you've been this or that. Um, I would say, you know, first and foremost, take a step back, try and look back at what you did or what you said. Um, try and look back and understand why that could have been construed as being racist. Um, listen to your friend who has called you out. So don't go into shame mode. Don't go into like defense mode. Yeah. And I think it's important to just like really, really listen and stop questioning and gaslighting the person who has experienced the racism itself. Right. Yeah. You mentioned gaslighting. I wanted to, um, add on because I'm, I guess like I find myself in kind of an interesting position of being a minority race in in the UK um, where we studied but being of the majority race at home where I come from um, and I always remember this um, statement that was made by an Indian minister in Singapore Tama Shamaragaratnam um, and he said that you know members of the majority race will never understand what it means and what it was like to grow up as a member of the minority and I um, I think no matter how anti-racist you can be, and even if you're a person of color, um, as I said before, like there, are obviously, like there is not one singular person of color or BME experience. Um, there's a multiplicity, and we all experience different disadvantages. So I try to remember that. I don't know what it's like to be a black person or a brown person. Um, in Singapore or in the UK or anywhere else. And so there's always something else to be learned. Um, never assume you know everything. Exactly. And and that being said, you know, you just you just mentioned, Jing, that like you yourself are in a minority position, but you're not, you know, a black person or brown person. And that brings us to the point that racism isn't just black or white. Um, you know, racism can occur between individuals of a minority group within within themselves. And so when you're talking about racism, you're not just, I think we have the assumption that it's black and white. And because our world is is based on the pillars of white supremacy, so, you know, that is the majority, but racism can also occur um, between, you know, between brown people of different, uh, of different nations. It can be um, perpetuated by different people, et cetera. And so I think that's also a very important point to remember there is a hierarchy so of course there is a racial hierarchy in society and that is a very unfortunate thing of um, you know the racist world that we do live in but I think it's also important to understand that even if you're a person of color you can still be racist and you can still be perpetuating racist stereotypes and racial oppression so be open um to being called out. And I think one thing that I, I do really like about th this time where everyone is emboldened to sort of call people out and call out racism and to, you know, protest and to, you know, really, really talk about it openly is that this is a great, this is a great point in time for really open, honest discussion and a lot of growth. So I would say like my number one advice is to just be as open as possible to receiving that, you know, constructive criticism that can essentially help you grow into becoming a more well-rounded, better person. Um, 
And I think just being open to learning as much as you can, because that's what this period is all about. It's about growth and learning. Um, and it's, it will be a, a lifetime of work. So anti-racism is not a one-off issue. It's constant. And so consistently say that, you know, I'm going to dedicate some time to learning more, to listening more, to being more compassionate, to being less defensive and, you know, less fragile and to stop centering myself. And I'm going to commit myself to, you know, making a lifelong committed a commitment to being anti-racist. Yeah. To your, to your point, I think, you know, if you truly are committed to anti-racist mobilization and being an ally, you wouldn't view someone calling you out as, you know, an attack on your character or anything. You should view it as a learning opportunity. And I think once you change that mindset and you view it as something you can learn from and like a mistake that you won't then make again, um, I think that is how we really can sort of progress as a society and as an individual as well. You can progress as someone who is, you know, fighting against racism. Uh, perfect. Okay, so moving on, we just wanted to touch on a couple of sort of key terms. Obviously, all the information that we've given today, you know, there's a lot of it. And constantly calling out people whenever you see anything sort of racist can obviously get very tiring. Um, whilst, you know, the renewed focus on the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, racism in general is good and productive, it can also be very, very tiring. Um, so... We just wanted to briefly discuss sort of emotional labor and allyship fatigue. Um, what are your key sort of um, tips for handling these uh, emotions and things? I think it's about having a group of friends that you can openly talk to um, and can emotionally offload to um, in a way that's shared, like it's mutual, it's balanced. Um, you know, if your family, you find there's a member of your family that you can't get rid of in your life, but you they're always going to be there. You find a safe space with your friends that you can, you know, share your emotional labour. And I think this is different, yeah, for white people and black people. I think um, it's really important to see that the emotional labour of a black person is going to be different to the to the labour that we're feeling as white people. Um, so I think it's just about recognising where you, you know, finding a space that you can talk, talk to people openly. Yeah, and I think for, you know, the black individuals listening, it is a lot, it is a lot going on. And often, you know, as a black individual, you feel that sort of duty to sort of fight for everyone who looks like you, you know, so they don't have to experience this anymore. And I'd say in terms of handling that emotional labor, I would say it's okay to take a rest day. You don't always need to be in a constant mode of being this, you know, um, warrior who fights injustice. I think it's okay to like process all the feelings that you're feeling. It's okay to process all of your emotions. It's okay to take, you know, to take a breather and to sort of sit with those feelings and sit with those emotions. You don't constantly have to be fighting. Um, and I think that's a powerful statement because I think allowing yourself to take a rest day will do yourself, um, a lot of good in terms of how, how much you can give to, you know, fighting for rights in the future. And so I think, you know, dealing with emotional labor as a, as a black individual, I think it's important to just, you know, take a break. It's okay to not always be on edge. It's okay to not always have to fight. Um, it's a lot. You're seeing images every single day at this point. Um, 
And I think it's okay to sort of just breathe and, you know, say that and to just disconnect for a little while. Like you don't always need to, because a lot of people, maybe, maybe your friends, they're sending you things. Maybe you're just constantly on Instagram. Maybe you're constantly scrolling. Maybe you're constantly sharing resources. It's okay to step back for a day or two and say, I need to take care of my mental health. I need to take care of myself. And I think that's important. Um, I, that makes me think of this quote that, um, I heard this Malay woman say in Singapore, um, her name is Shia Taha. Um, but it just makes me think of the quote, which is that if you don't know, or if you feel the conversation isn't going anywhere, you can suspend discussion and put the conversation on a conscientious pause. Um, the key, the key phrase, I guess, being conscientious pause in that it's not, um, a conversation that you're going to stop, but you're going to take a step away. Um, so that you can come back to the conversation, you know, feeling refreshed and feeling like you have the capacity to participate in, participate in it again. Thanks, guys. That was a really great discussion. Uh, we hope to have a podcast coming out soon, um, more about allyship fatigue and oversharing and sort of how to prioritise your mental health and things like that. Thank you so much to our panellists and to anyone that is listening. Really hope that you found this episode useful and will implement some of our tips into your anti-racist mobilisation. This has been Muna Gasim, Misba Malik, Ashling Williams and Jingmin Tan. Our sound editor is Jay Richardson. Thanks for listening. This is Declarations Podcast. You can find us on all the major podcast applications.